You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of um, Payments Innovation. I'm Richard Arundel from Currency Cloud. As Nikesh said, we're going to talk about, um, I guess, Web 3.0 and then the impact on cross-border payments. Luckily for me, who is not an expert on this, I have Nikesh, who is an expert on this. Um, but I think, listen, let's get into it. And I think when we, when we talk about um, kind of this, this buzzword, Web 3.0, I think it's interesting. And, and we spoke previously about maybe going through a bit of a history around kind of the internet itself and, and the evolution all the way back to, I guess, the late 90s, 1996, when, I guess, Web 1.0 came out, which was really the revolution. And when we talk about Web 3.0, I, I think it's actually the evolution of the internet. But that kind of Web 1.0 was very much kind of, you know, static content delivery. You know, think kind of this CNN, BBC, et cetera. But from very important, especially from payments point of view, because this was always also the advent of things like PayPal, things like WorldPay, e-commerce was kind of invented, I guess, back in those, those kind of late 90s. And then we come on to something that, and, and through kind of some preparation for this podcast, I kind of learned around Web 2.0. We didn't really call it Web, web 2.0 when we were going through it, I, I guess. But this was very much, I guess, a social web. Right? This was kind of user-generated content, dynamic content. And obviously from a, from a payments and cross-border payments point of view, I think this was really the rise of kind of new finance or fintech, kind of these digital-first companies. Also the rise of, I guess, blockchain and blockchain technology. And that kind of now takes us to, to where we are now, which is where my expertise kind of runs out. And I hand over to you, Nikesh, to talk about, you know, a, a, is that a good kind of synopsis of the last, what, 20 yeah, yeah, that's, look, I think, I think, I think that's fantastic, Richard. Um, yeah, you know, look, look, Web, web 1.0, you know, we we're really just scratching the surface. I think Pizza Hut was one of the first organizations to try and, you know, make, make use of it. And, uh, yeah, I remember someone saying at the time that, look, they put their website out there and there was no way to pay, like you said, right? So this is when PayPal was born and all those sorts of things. But before that, there was no real easy way to pay. Um, yes, there were credit cards. P- people were afraid to put numbers on there. We didn't have things like, um, uh, you know, SSL like we do now. It was insecure, it was open. And with um, Pizza Hut, I remember them saying that they only got like one order in six months or something like that, right? And And it was a pretty basic website. It was just black and white screens you had to order from the menu you couldn't change your order uh, you know really basic and and what we've seen i think you've quite rightly put it is just a you know that was a revolution that's spawned all sorts of things and it's kind of i sort of look at it as um an evolution of human communication really because i I think as well as we know each other richard i'm never going to tell you when you're driving uh, to work at 8 a.m in the morning uh that there's a traffic jam on the freeway, but thanks to things like Google Maps and all that sharing that almost happens implicitly, it's just revolutionised human communication. So I can tell you because I've driven on that road that it's slow, and you can get that message without us ever having to communicate it. So it's just been a huge, huge, huge forward leap. You know, with Web two point zero, with social media, you know, big, big changes. Um, I was just talking the other day about digital cameras, right, and how Kodak actually got it right. They invented the digital camera. They knew that the digital camera will be big. They knew that their business was going to die. I had an early digital camera as well. And, uh, you know, at the time, the first thing people would say is, hey, that's amazing. The second thing they would say was, how are you going to print out that picture? 
<laughs> and and Kodak heard that and they said, look, the future in digital photography is being able to print high quality um, pictures. And everyone thought that, everyone saw that. But the revolution was so much bigger that we didn't realize that, you know, with the onset of Web 2.0, that we wouldn't be printing pictures anymore. We wouldn't be sharing things on uh, in person. We'll be sharing them online. You don't need to print pictures these days. And we've discovered with COVID and all these things that, you know, online is just this huge realm of human existence that, um, you know, we're only just uh, touching the surface of. And and I think 3.0 is, like you say, the next big iteration of of what's happening next. And that's really exciting. So if we, so I, I like to think in terms of how kind of technology addresses kind of customer problems. And I think with, with Web 2.0, and I think what you're, you're saying there is maybe less of a problem, but an expectation that actually the delivery of financial services and, and you know, the, the narrow kind of part of that, which is cross-border payments, um, the expectation from the consumer is that happens online. And obviously throughout you know, that, that period of time, we had you know, smartphones come out and, and tablets. So there's an expectation. And, and, and what I think digital first and fintech companies have, have been very good at, certainly over the last kind of five, 10 years, is tapping into that expectation. But what they've also done is, you know, there's an expectation of I want, I want my, my financial services to be delivered to me in a digital format. But then the advantages of technology can drive down price. You know, so it's driving down for cost of the consumer, and they can also drive down the delivery time. Because actually, if we think about, you know, about payments, what people want is kind of a move towards zero cost and zero time. And that's what I think the evolution of, of, um, of, of technology and the internet has given us. So what does Web 3.0 give if we relate it back to those kind of customer problems that maybe Web 2.0 didn't? Yeah, look, look I think, I think uh, you know, the founders of the web had this view that this, this would enable, you know, communication for the masses. It'll mean that you can, anyone can communicate with, with it, anyone else. Uh, I remember with, you know, 1.0, I... Um, I was at university and I, I, I visited the U.S. and, you know, this guy said, you know, have you got email? And I, I said, no, what's that? And little did I know that, uh, you know, my, my uh, memo address at university was an email address and I could exchange information with anyone. So, so, so it enabled Web, web 1.0, 2.0 was designed to enable everyone to communicate with each other, everyone part, to participate. What we discovered with, um, you know, since then is there's been a lot of concentration, right? In order to, to um, you know, have a voice, you've got to go through a big corporate. The idea with Web 3.0 is the restoration of the, you know, that original vision that everyone should have a say. And like you said, you know, embedding things like, uh, you know, uh, being able to get paid, simple things like that, being a participant in the marketplace to the extent where, if you can imagine in the future it's possible for a rice farmer in Vietnam to sell rice from their farm directly to your kitchen. That that sort of thing is sort of the thinking behind Web 3.0. So giving everyone the ability to pay, creating a global marketplace of things, being able to share data in ways that we haven't shared before. So a lot of this technology that we're, we're hearing about with um, Web 3.0 you know, like blockchain is designed, you know, for that purpose, that everyone, there's no central ledger now controlled by an organization. It's open, it's 
shared on the internet. In the old days, your ledger was a book, right? So you had to keep that physically in one place. Now we're opening up to the idea that, hang on a second, it doesn't need to be a closed book. It can be something that's shared. And if you did that, what does that mean? What does that mean from a money point of view? Yeah. What does that mean from an exchange point of view? And I think I think the stuff that um, you know, Currency Cloud and others are doing uh, around giving that embedded payment capability, embedded finance to everyone, is kind of helping us along that journey. And I think I think that's huge. I want to kind of dig into that slightly, slightly more because there's lots talked about kind of DeFi, decentralized finance. There's a lot talked about blockchain. I think often you know, blockchain comes in association with kind of cryptocurrencies. And and the two kind of get converged sometimes and, and perhaps wrongly, especially with, with regards to kind of regulators and banks and their opinion on, on it. I want to kind of delve in and going again back to this kind of customer problem. So what does a decentralized ledger, what are the advantages over kind of the, 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 the DeFi world compared to the centralized ledger when it comes to sending payments for you and I or for a small business who's looking to pay an international invoice? Yeah, look, look, I think, I think uh, you know, at, if, if you look at the possibilities of that shared ledger and we go back in human history, right, before money we would have, we had this notion of, um, of, of, of shared debt, right? So in a village or a community, you know, you'd, you'd exchange things, not, not via barter, um, but on a debt basis, right, because you knew everyone, right? So if someone wanted something, you'd say, yeah, sure, have it, um, et cetera. And then I think, I think with the advent of transport technology and uh, agriculture, uh, you know, people could produce a lot more and travel a lot further. And then the person you did a deal with, the person you did an exchange with, wasn't necessarily someone from your village. And we didn't trust them. And we invented this thing called money uh, and, and barter and then money because we trusted the goods and later a coin more than we trusted an individual. And what I think I think what we're returning to now is we've got the technology to be able to, you know, share that position. And even though you don't know it, like with electronic money, we're sort of halfway there, where it's something that you don't see. It's a ledger shared between banks. So your bank is talking to my bank and we're kind of they're kind of sharing ledgers. I'm getting a message from my bank saying I've been paid by your bank and then I give you the goods. That kind of thing is going to expand, I think, and, and what you're finding with you know, blockchain is more than the technology, more than the cryptocurrency, it's this underlying idea that if we could share our data um, so much more could be possible. If we could share that information, so much more can be possible. You don't always need to resort, resort to a, co- a coin. Right? That's what we do now. Whenever there's an exchange, we have to resort to money. You don't always need to do that. You can, um, you know, uh, you know, take on debts. If a co- if, if a company knows who you are, then they don't need to be paid immediately. They can they can wait for the bill. Um, that kind of thing. And I, you know, I think I think that's that's really the amazing thing. And the big the big thing that's coming out of all of that, um, I think, one of the first building blocks is this digital ID. And that, mm-hmm. I, you know, look look, I think I think that's really interesting. And I know I know Richard, that's something that. Um, you're passionate about and uh you know is has been implemented in a number of ways around the world but i think that's going to be the really big change that we're all going to see that uh you know how do how do we master this digital idea how do we suddenly know about everyone how do we exchange information and all of a sudden we'll find that the world is a much smaller place than what it seems like today 
and I want to come back to you, to something you said, but but on the on the digital idea, I think we're in an interesting time at the moment because this is all new for a lot of people. So there are plenty of people who are slightly concerned about their their identity being shared kind of everywhere, um, kind of on on the web. Um, so how do you see kind of that that you know in, in terms of the new technologies out there? Um, obviously, we've talked about digital ideas as, as something that's been you know, paramount to this this shift of Web 3.0. But what do you say to people who are slightly concerned about, you know, people, you know, many more businesses and, and and companies getting access to this this identification? Yeah, look, look, I think I think it's a good point. And, and if you look at some, you know, like I was a little bit critical of some of the real-time payment systems that are uh, com- coming out. Um, uh, they, you know, like mobile payments and so on. They're fantastic, very convenient, but they've got a privacy model that is kind of about 10 years old. Yeah. Um, you have to share your mobile number to to get paid. Maybe you don't want to give your mobile number out. Maybe you don't want to give your email address out. Um, the new technology that's coming out, and it's, uh, you know, there's one particularly from the World Wide Web Consortium, W3C, the people who uh, invented the internet uh, as we know it. They're developing this thing called verifiable credentials um, and the and digital identities. And this is really amazing. What it means is that you can bring your own identity, right? You're in control of your identity. And you don't have to give your ID number out. You don't have to give any identification information out. But you can convince someone that you are a real person, uh, you know, based on a verifiable credential from someone else. So, for example, um, hey, uh, look, I'm I'm a real person. You know, I, I I'll I'll pay my bill, and that verifiable credential is stamped by your bank. And so the, so a, a recipient goes, okay, that's great. I'm happy for you to pay that bill. You know, uh, I've got your bank's promise. I don't necessarily need to know who you are, but uh, it's good to know that you're a real individual and that you'll pay your your bill. So I think I think that technology that uh, is called decentralized ID, where you can bring your own ID, you're in control of who you share it with. You're in con- it's privacy preserving, so you don't have to give away all the information when you enter a pub. You don't have to show your driver's license and declare all your information you can just tell them that you're over 18 and uh you know that's sufficient and do that digitally i think i think um that's really exciting technology that's coming out and i think uh you know particularly in your part of the world in the european union and in the us this is technology that they're trying that is part of the whole web point three zero movement that i think will really revolutionize the way that uh, you know the internet works and the way that humans interact yeah, and, and and perhaps I'm kind of naively liberal in my views, but you know I, I'm okay with this because actually I think the benefits that I get back from you know as, as a consumer are are so much greater. And, and obviously, there's a huge amount of work that, that we need to do in terms of a the message around the security of, of of the data and how we do keep it safe. But I think in terms of sharing this, um, just our whole kind of um, online experience and experience in general is going to get better. In terms of you know, we, as I think we said we, we, we live through, we basically live through you know, Web 1.0 and, and, and Web 2.0, and that kind of crept up on us. And it's not going to be, you know, the, the move to, to Web, Web 3.0 has started and is happening, but it's not going to be a paradigm shift. Change is going to happen in steps. And going back to what we said at the beginning, you know, the, the, the internet itself was a revolution. This is kind of evolutionary, this move. And also, you know, innovations in kind of traditional sectors that rely on you know the, the, the traditional financial sectors are rooted in centralized structures so obviously change is going to happen slower 
where are you seeing kind of big movements in in change at the moment, either geographically or in certain sectors? And where can other traditional um, kind of sectors learn from that? Yeah, look, look. I think I think you know that's that's, that's a it's a really good point. Look, I think I think uh, you know there's there's this, the famous chasm of innovation, which is um, kind of a mix of the marketing the product uh, uh, marketing cycle, which is essentially a bell curve, right? So it starts off low. Very few people use it. The innovators pick it up. Then uh, the early adopters pick it up, and they tell their friends, "Hey, this is awesome." And then, and then you've got the majority early adopters, the majority adopters coming in, and uh, you know the late adopters, and then the laggards. And yeah. so that that way, you've got you've got the sort of bell shaped adoption curve. And there's this phenomenon that um, I think it was Jeffrey Moore that touched on called the chasm, which sort of superimposes the, the hype curve on that. Which is, look, there's a lot of excitement initially, but you know the dream doesn't materialize as quickly as you'd want it to. And as a result of that, uh, there's a drop-off in interest really quickly. So the early majority comes in, the, sorry, the early adopters come in. They're a little bit disappointed because it's not quite working. Like, uh, you know, one one good example was, um, you know, Google Home and all that home automation stuff. A lot of early adopters jumped on that. And uh, it was a little bit disappointing because it, you know, didn't quite integrate. Every product's got its own software. It was difficult to... Uh, you know, put together. Some people have managed to get it working, but, you know, you haven't got the majority using it. And I, I think where we're seeing a lot of excitement, you know, like in blockchain, you always see that um, uh, trough of disillusionment uh, that follows shortly after. But but I think so many times um, you've got things that, you know, take a while to pick up. Like I think electric vehicles is a great example that, you know, it's been around for ages, but it took a long time, you know, and the technology is not new. You know, Tesla jumped on it. And if you look at, you know, how Tesla struggled to get a noticed, you know, that's a story in itself. And then eventually everyone, you know, got the idea, got the concept, and that that picked up immensely. In technology, I, I think you, you're sort of you're seeing that with, um, you know, on a number of uh, fronts, particularly now. So, uh, you know, look, I think I think digital identity is, is one, but another, you know, big area is... Um, uh, you know, cloud adoption, right? So that that followed the same sort of path, right? It took a while for people to see the benefits, and and now it's just amazing. We don't know what we would have done otherwise. You get you get software at a fraction of the cost. You get you don't have to worry about infrastructure. You know, all those things are um, amazing. And what we're going to see is that individuals now pick up on this, right? So so a lot of the a lot of the things that you wouldn't have being able to do as an individual, like software development, you know, having your own solutions, all that's going to be possible, you know, thanks to the, that next evolution of cloud computing. So you see, you see these curves happen again and again, right? So the, you know, like an early um, hype and then this big drop off and then eventually everyone catches up. Like I, I've got a, I've got a really good example just quickly about, about, um, uh, you know, uh, faxes <laughs> and during the dot-com boom, there was a mining company that I, invested in magnesium mining and uh, they didn't find much magnesium, but the dot, dot com boom was happening. And then someone there came up with an idea about what if you could put faxes on the internet and, and they did that. And I, I think the price, you know, went up tenfold and I got out of there cause I, I knew what was uh, <laughs> going to happen. And then, um, and they crashed, but then, you know, I'm, I'm hearing more recently that, yeah, that that problem needs to be solved. There are a lot of people using faxes. How do they now go on, uh, you know, electronically. So all these things they do take time, but um, 
you know, we're finding more and more that we're getting these, uh, you know, ideas that, you know, would have taken decades to pick up, you know, being implemented, you know, in, in just a few years. And I, I think, I think that's amazing. I think, you know, real time, uh, real time payments, uh, you know, uh, NSC payments, mobile payments is another example on that front. Um, and I think, I think what's happening in the international world around CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, is another example of Web 3.0. And what we're going to find very quickly is that, uh, like, if you look at the map, there's a map on the internet of all the countries in the world that have implemented it. In 2014, no one, no one was interested in it. If you, if you talk to a central bank, they would have laughed at you. If you look at the world map of CBDCs, every country almost in the world, every um, uh, you know major uh, nation has either done a trial or is implementing something on central bank digital currencies. And on that, do you think the lack of adoption, because we, we talk about this a lot, but the, the lack of adoption and, and, and the link to kind of, going back to my point about the link to kind of cryptocurrency, and actually... Again, you know, I'm, we're slightly obsessive at, at Currency Cloud around, you know, a solution to a customer problem. And actually, in theory, there was a really interesting solution underpinned by blockchain technology. But actually, really what cryptocurrency became were crypto assets where people would, would buy and sell them for financial gain rather than looking at the actual customer problem, which was how do I get money from A to B quickly, securely and, and, and uh, at, a, at a low cost. And do you think yeah. that, that lack of adoption was because of that linkage to say, well, actually, there's a bit of a cloud hanging over um, kind of these cryptocurrencies because actually they're crypto assets that people are in and out of for financial gain rather than a medium of exchange. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I you know, and I think, I think, uh, and, and that's the interesting thing. Like when you look at when you look at real time payments, and I was just telling someone the other day, like we've been, you know, several countries haven't had a real time payment. Um, Australia is one of them that, uh, you know, even now, even though we've got one in Australia, not many people use it. But what happened was that, you know, um, people figured a way and, and technology companies figured like PayPal and so on, figured a way to make uh, real-time payments work either through, you know, credit cards or P2P. You know, to, you know the other day um, I, I had to make a payment and, and uh the vendor was very happy for me to send a screenshot of my internet banking payment. Not ideal, but basically, you know, they sort of figured a way to make the existing technology work. And I think what I what I like about currency cloud is that look, we don't have open banking. You know, we don't have um, uh, to to a large extent. You know, we don't have integrated bank accounts across across borders. But you're, you're able to, using te- the technology and know-how that you've got in each geography, have an organization that does all the hard work of integration and then provide to a customer an almost seamless experience of what it's like being able to operate in several geographies at once. And that's, that's the kind of thing that you're finding with um, you know, uh, Web 3.0, that it's giving that accessibility you know, to people that normally wouldn't have had uh, uh, that, that sort of access, like um, big corporates and so on, a decade ago, were the only people who could do this sort of stuff. Now that capability is going to be available to everyone because, um, you know, just because of the ubiquity and the accessibility of uh, this new technology. So we, we talk about it in the concept of, I guess, le- leveling the playing field, and, and we've always kind of done that. But also I think that's that's the same for some of the the incumbents who have kind of you know centralized out of date technology. I think I think what this does it allows everybody to to kind of offer a service to the end customer. I wanted to we're almost up on time. Um but I wanted to talk about some of the work that 
that you're doing in the Emerging Payments um, Association in Asia, I by no means any kind of affiliation with Jeffrey Moore, but the, the book Crossing the Chasm is, is brilliant and I think people should should read it. But to cross that chasm, what are kind of some of the advice or, what, or how are you working with people you know, specifically around in, 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 in your region to kind of move forward you know, out of those early adopters you know, to get it into the kind of the mainstream and to really push some of the advantages that the Web 3.0 you know, holds for, for these companies? Yeah, so so you know that's a, that's a great question, Richard. I think um, look, we're we're obviously trying to get a lot more coordination. I think one of the big problems uh, that we've got in a number of countries is that they're solving problems in silos. Everyone's trying to figure it out themselves. Um, yeah. Many governments are obviously suspicious suspicious of you know their neighbours. Uh, you know um, they've got they've got <laughs> history that goes back millennia. <laughs> Potentially, um, uh, you know, with their neighbours, uh, but but what that's led to is that everyone's trying to solve the problem themselves. What we're trying to do at emerging and the Emerging Payments Association is having having a more open dialogue, getting that accessibility that you you, you talked about, putting a focus on that, and um, having countries coordinate for two reasons. Number one is harmonisation, so that they can benefit from the technology solutions that are provided by others in the area and potentially even integrate, right? So because the world is now global, right? Online knows no borders. Being able to make a payment online in Vietnam should be as easy as making it in Thailand. So talking to the regulators, um, uh, you know, APEC, the G7, the Financial Stability Board, about how we can harmonize those systems and there's a lot of work being done on, on global payments at that level and solving the big problems that everyone's worried about. I think like with, with payments, we're talking about, we talked about digital identity. The big issue with global payments and harmonizing that is consistency of identity yeah. uh, so that you don't, uh, there's no money laundering, there's no terrorism financing going on. So those sorts of things, uh, you know, are really important. Hearing the story from a commercial point of view, so not just designing a system so uh, it works theoretically, but designing it so that commercial organizations are able to implement something that's useful for consumers is is key to success because it's in the end, it's going to be those organizations that can take it to market, that can get the user adoption that's necessary. And that's really what we're focusing on, getting the word out that, um, uh, you know, we need to have a commercial lens put on a lot of these capabilities and also harmonizing these payment capabilities throughout the region. I think that's, that's what we're trying to do. So, so not an easy task, you know, especially when you, when you throw in kind of policymakers, regulators, uh, as you said, the world is increasingly global yet we're trying to make it feel like local with, with global payments. And I think everybody everywhere has the same challenge. They want to be able to get paid or pay anyone, anywhere, at close to zero cost, close to zero time. But there's there's so many different, and I think this is, there's there's legacy infrastructure, legacy kind of policy that um, we're all trying to overcome as the world has got so global, yet we're trying to make it so local. Exactly, exactly. And look, I think, I think we'll get there. It'll take some time, but, you know, all of this, you know, coming back to Web 3.0, it's, I think it's us evolving, like you said, to work better with each other, you know, whether, whether that means making payments or it means policy, I think in the end, you know, we're all trying to, you know, work globally, you know, to achieve 
goals that we couldn't achieve individually. Yeah, I, I've heard it referred to as the kind of the decentralized, yes, but the intelligent um, kind of evolution of, of the internet, better data, better data ownership, better control. But as you said, it's it's all around working together. Um, because we are we are up on time, but thank you so much for coming on. We could have spoken for hours, I think, on this subject. I think it's it's you know one that's both that's dear to your heart, obviously, and obviously dear to to, to myself and us at Currency Cloud. Lots to do, but the good thing is, that, I mean, this that there's lots of smart people and passionate people who are trying to solve these problems. So the yeah. next you know, few years are going to be super exciting in, in our space. Absolutely, and Richard, it's been fantastic talking to you. And look, I think I think this is a wonderful area, and yeah, looking looking forward to see what comes out of all this uh, revolution or evolution. And if, if anybody listening needs, wants to either get in touch with you or learn more about kind of what either you're doing or what the, the EPA are doing, where can they learn more? Uh, yeah, so our, our website, uh, emergingpaymentsasia.org is a good place to go. Or oh, you can find us on LinkedIn. Awesome. Nikesh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.